Welcome to the Eclectic Gamers Podcast. It's April 10th, a Sunday. I'm Tony and joined as always by... Dennis. Hello, everyone. And here we're going to talk to you about pinball and video games and tabletop. We've got a lot of interesting things coming up this this uh, show, but let's first go over what we've been doing the last couple of weeks. Uh, what have you been up to, Dennis? Oh, well, I uh, finally finished Final Fantasy Type-0, video game I've been working on for a while. Wrapped that up this morning. Started up Far Cry 4, which I've been having on my backlog for quite a while. Uh, played a little bit of pinball, did a couple tournaments recently, Strawberry Hill Strikeout and the monthly at the 403 Club. I didn't do very well at either of those. Did my own uh, Star Trek machine, finally hit the Kobayashi Maru mode. So, which that's basically meaning I've completed one third of the game's programming if we go in terms of how deep it is. But uh, of course, it set my high score as well. So that was nice. And I've put up a couple of my older machines for sale because I want to free up some room for one or two new ones. And there are several that I just don't play very much. So I thought I'd try and get rid of those. And I'm getting a lot of interest, but no deals have closed out yet. But that's what's been keeping me busy. Well, it sounds like you've been keeping pretty busy and Good luck on getting your machine swapped out. I know personally, I've been playing a fair amount of Stardew Valley lately, in addition to my ongoing Star Realms addiction. Unfortunately for me, uh, I have had a real big string of bad luck in Star Realms. I have dropped a, a full rank. I've dropped from rank 12 to rank 11, and I've just barely been holding on to rank 11 this whole last week. It's just been a terrible week for me, gaming-wise. Not much else has been done. Uh, I spent the... Uh, up to just a week or so ago, studying for a certification for work. So that's all I've been doing for the most part until I finished that. I did pick up The Force Awakens, and my oldest finally got to see it, and she enjoyed it quite a lot. That's about all I've done lately. Oh, and I got trounced horribly at Strawberry Hill Strikeout, but that didn't surprise me. I got I got completely, oh, man. I had a win. I had a win set up, ready to go. But the gentleman I was playing had earned an extra ball in Elvis. And the way the game is set up is with an extra ball or the way the tournament was, you just uh, drain it, no flip, just let it go. I was up 700, almost 800,000. His single drain got up enough points to push him just over the top to beat me. It was soul crushing. Oh, yeah, it's always painful when on those. Uh, I'm a bit surprised, actually, that Elvis was set to allow extra balls. Uh, I don't know why they didn't. I, I'm just I I wonder because I'm pretty sure a stern that modern would have allowed it to be turned off. Um, I'm not sure if they regularly do there or not, though. That's probably consistent with their normal behavior. But yeah, when you when you get that free plunge, and uh, I know with Elvis, there's a potential skill shot, but it's also not all that hard to get that ball to go into those pops, and then those pops can score a bunch of points. It can throw. There's like a mode hole up there, I think, if I'm remembering right. And it can throw the ball into the hole, and that can score points. So, unfortunately, it's not like, say, if you were to just get to plunge on firepower, where there's probably not a whole lot of points that are going to come out of the pop bumpers out of that. But um, Elvis can be pretty generous on that initial launch. Yeah, he pulled like 850,000, 900,000 out of it. So, it was painful. It hurt the old ego a little bit. Yeah, well, we should we should say though uh, we both actually did uh, just as well at Strawberry Hill Strikeout. We didn't uh, we didn't get three strikes in a row either. We did win uh, one match each, so we weren't we weren't the worst. We we tied at the second worst level, so that's a progress of a sort. Yeah, it's definitely moving forward a little bit. 
Well, let's go ahead, uh, given that, and transition into our pinball topic, which uh, is a first for us. Uh, it's going to be an interview. And so I took some time and I interviewed Nick Dangerous. He's with the Dallas Makerspace Vector Committee. And we mentioned one of the machines that he restored in our last episode. He is the one who uh, worked on the electrical mechanical machine Freedom that was uh, best uh, EM restoration runner-up at uh, Texas Pinball Festival 2016. So I sat down with him for a few minutes and we discussed a variety of topics relating to the work of uh, the Vector Committee in Dallas Makerspace, a bit about the machine freedom itself, which you and I both found pretty fascinating, and uh, just sort of what he's looking towards doing in the future uh, regarding his interests in EM machines in particular. So let's go ahead and roll that tape, and then let's have a discussion. Hello, everyone. I'd like to welcome Nick Dangerous uh, with the Dallas Makerspace Vector Committee to the Eclectic Gamers Podcast. Nick, thanks so much for taking time out of your day to speak with me about your uh, Freedom prototype and what you do with the, with the Vector Committee and the Dallas Makerspace. Oh, it's my pleasure. Well, uh, so let's go ahead and launch off for the listeners and myself. Uh, could you tell us what the Dallas Makerspace is and what the Vector Committee does with the Dallas Makerspace? Because I am completely in the dark about what either of those things is. Well, I guess then that means we have to do a better job of uh, developing our website. Um, but essentially, the uh, Dallas Makerspace is part of the maker movement, which you may have heard of um, maybe via other news sources. But we're basically a um, nonprofit uh, shared sort of workshop, classroom, and social space all in one. And um, we you know, we kind of attract people who are interested in creating and making things, and some of it centers around um, electronics or microcontrollers. Um, we have a, about four 3D printers, um, a creative arts a area, a series of large format printers, vinyl cutters, a metal shop, wood shop. I mean, uh, even the automotive section, the pottery. It's it's basically a place that's, uh, it's, I call it shop class for adults. And so, you uh, essentially, for $50 a month, we're, we're not only the largest, fairly sure we're the largest makerspace in the United States right now, um, and if not, certainly the, the cheapest in terms of what you get for your money, but $50 a month will get you as an individual 24-7 access to our... 20,000 square foot facility and so essentially it's a place to network with other creative people learn new skills learn new um, creative abilities and have fun doing it okay so the makerspace isn't pinball specific or even just gaming in general but it, it you you really do mean maker it's extremely comprehensive uh, yes, the makerspace itself is the is the um, you know is the facility and all. There are many committees within the makerspace, and and some deal with uh, you know like woodworking and metalworking and vector. Uh, it's an acronym essentially, but it's it's basically the committee that deals with everything that's arcade and pinball tech. Okay, so it was part of the vector group then, the vector committee, I should say, that your freedom prototype ends up showing up at the Texas Pinball Festival. That's correct. The, uh, we've been promoting Vector for about a year and a half now, but uh, we've really reached a new level. And we have uh, several prolific members and, and projects um, that, that have come in and been restored at the makerspace. So um, 
at the Texas Pinball Festival, I think we had 12 or 13 machines, and nearly all of them had been either um, restored at the Makerspace or, in the case of the Mortal Kombat X cabinet, built entirely from scratch at the Makerspace. So um, it's a, we have a nice little group, and we're um, actively trying to connect with the community of, of arcade and, and pinball aficionados who would like to kind of just take just playing the games to the next level of actually kind of creating hacking and, and building them okay well that's it's really interesting and uh i think actually it was a, a number of those vector uh projects uh ended up either winning awards or being highly recognized within the uh, award categories i recall that mortal Kombat one in particular uh at the conclusion of the pinball festival Yes, we were really happy with uh, Rodney's uh, win. He had the best overall custom machine, and I won a best in show for um, best 70s uh, electromechanical pinball for the snow derby machine. And um, Freedom was best runner-up restoration, and also uh, Sean had a ribbon, a runner-up ribbon for his time warp uh, solid state. But um, parts of all of those machines have been... Um, restored or, or built at the makerspace in our committee. So we're, we're actually um, pretty proud to, to have uh, achieved that our first time out. Well, it was really impressive. It's not a total clean sweep, but I don't know if any other group got so got so much recognition as you all did at the end of the uh, at the end of the festival. Uh, let's transition uh, to the to your freedom machine specifically. Uh, for those that had listened to our fifth episode, uh, Tony was essentially gushing over that freedom, and I, I had to agree. Of all the EMs I played at the festival. I thought it was the best one. So I, we both thought you should have won best restoration, uh, but uh, runner up was very, very good. I was wondering, I didn't know until they were actually announcing those that it was a prototype. I didn't know what, what made a prototype special. Could, so could you explain uh, specifically regarding the freedom prototype? What makes that prototype unique? What was different about it versus the production runs for freedom? Oh, now the cat's out of the bag. You see, I knew this was going to happen. Um, well, I I have done a extraordinary amount of research in terms of looking at the entire sort of pinball vernacular that is from the 30s all the way up to the present era. There's a website called IPDB, that's the Internet Pinball Database, and you can search by year or by genre um, in terms of... Um, all the pinball machines that have been released and has photos and essentially um, I've looked through the entire IPDB twice which takes quite a quite a bit of time to do but I was studying uh, geometry and, and what exactly is it that uh, makes a pinball machine a good machine I really kind of wanted to deconstruct not only you know the artwork and the sounds and of course the obvious elements but specifically the core of what makes a pinball machine what it is, is the geometry. It's the game itself. And so in studying the machines, I have a collection of about 25 that I've built up over the last year and a half. And most of them are these electromechanical machines. That's my favorite era. But in the case of Freedom, um, I guess you'd notice that it had a pop bumper between flippers. And there's really only a small handful of, of pinball machines that had ever been built with that configuration. Uh, most of the time, you know, you just pinball machines just have two flippers at the bottom and that's kind of it. But um, 
Yeah, let's see. In the era of um, earlier machines, pinball machines had like two-inch flippers, and then around the 1970, they went to the three-inch flippers. So of the three-inch flipper pinball machines, and that's the size of flipper we have today, only three were ever made with a middle pop number. And they're all good. But the Freedom prototype, to me, uh, I just saw it on a Craigslist ad in Las Vegas, and I'd never seen it before either. I mean, I saw it in the IPDB, but uh, I kind of took a look at the geometry, and this just makes this fantastic figure eight pattern, and the shot layout is significantly different from, from other games, that uh, I just took a chance on it and bought it from the guy, and it was in terrible shape. I mean, I didn't get to see it firsthand, so I was like $1,100 plus like $350 shipping for this, you know, kind of beat up electromechanical machine. And, um, but from what I knew of the history of these types of layouts and the geometry is that middle pop games are really fun. And this one just looked, it just, I knew it was just going to be a winner just from the layout. And, you know, Freedom, I guess you're familiar with, I don't know if you've looked at the production numbers or anything, but Freedom is a game that was very, very popular. They, they made about 5,000 of them and another 1,500 in solid state form. It was built right at the era where electromechanical was crossing over into solid state. And so there's quite a few of them out there, but only the first 100 were ever made with the middle pop bumper. And as the story goes, what happened was Valley was um, taking these 100 games uh, to the different trade shows and were kind of showing off, hey, this is the latest and greatest, and trying to sell them to arcade operators. But when they got to Europe, uh, the European distributors were like, um, you know, Ooh, I do not understand this niggly pop bumper. I need to move it to make it like all the rest. I don't understand. So, <laughs> so they, you know, um, they had to have a little discussion, and they're like, "Well, I guess you know, sales business is business. You gotta gotta stay in business. Gotta pay the people. Pay the, you know, make payroll. But um, but it's a, it's a, it was a travesty because a lot of rare games are rare for a good reason. They they usually suck. You know." You're on your production line and you're making a game that's not very fun, you kind of stop early and that's why they have a limited run or, or maybe they're just too expensive to make. But in this case, it's just extraordinarily ironic that in 1976, America's celebrating its bicentennial, the name of the game is Freedom, it's got American flags plastered all over it, and it was a fantastic layout that they came out with, the best middle pop game ever, and then they take it to Europe and they get shot down. I mean, so and they so they caved in. They basically changed the geometry to a standard kind of layout, which, in my opinion, screws up the geometry because you have a V shape. All the shots come from the middle instead of across. And as you know, as uh, Tony was, uh, is it Tony? I'm sorry. Yeah, it's, yeah. T Tony, Tony was the one, the other one. I'm Dennis. Yes. So, so as Tony was, you know, I I could just hear it in his voice when uh, you guys did the last podcast. And he was like. Freedom. That's the game. It's awesome. I'm like, yeah, it is great. I just, you know, I'm so glad that, uh, you know, and for quite a number of people at the show just had that kind of, hey, this is something different about this game, but only a hundred of them are, uh, were ever made. So um, it's just a really um, unfortunate business decision that triumphed over 
over engineering and creativity in that case. But obviously, I'm pretty happy to have one. I would just recommend, certainly, if, if you ever know of anyone who has one, you better grab it. <laughs> so, yeah. I- I, I, yeah, that, that, uh, pop bumper between the flippers really, I felt made that game what made it the fun that it was. Uh, I mean, the only other middle pop bumper game that I had played, I actually own, but it's a 50s Gottlieb. So it's the two inch flippers and it's covered in gobble holes. And there's a, you know, there's a pop bumper down there, which can save you, but it's not, doesn't have that flow like the freedom does, where that pop bumper is sort of an integral part of how the ball is going to actually be moving around all the time on that main play field. So it was it was incredibly unique. And then when I looked and I saw that there were over five thousand freedoms, I was like, "Well, what what were the differences? Maybe we could, maybe I could tell him he could watch. Tony would want one. He could watch for a non prototype unit." It's like, "Oh, there's no middle. There's no flipper pop bumper. Never mind. He ain't gonna want it." Exactly. It's just not not the same game at all. And which uh, which fifties uh, game is that that you have? Uh, it's a uh, scoreboard is the name of it. Score hyphen board. Okay. Yep. That's in my little list. So, yep, that one looked good. Um, yeah, my, yeah. So, yeah, the, another one from that era that's really nice is Magic City. It's uh, Williams' game, two-inch flippers. And it's got a middle pop. It also kind of great artwork. But yeah, it's a small middle pop games are kind of. Uh, there's only about a dozen or so, but they're they're all. Uh, it's it's a pretty neat uh, style of geometry. So uh, let's transition to the restoration process for a bit. Uh, I was curious in terms of if you if you had a sense in terms of how many hours were invested and what were the main elements that needed restoring. It sounds like it was in pretty rough shape when you got it. Uh, it certainly was. Um, as mentioned, I had to buy it sight unseen, which was scary, and certainly shell out a lot more than I typically do on an unseen, unplayed electromechanical, but the rarity and the geometry was the was the issue. So when it arrived, um, I think one of the reasons I didn't invest in show for it was the back glass had been touched up poorly by someone. I don't know, uh, but it was... Uh, some sort of acrylic paint that had been badly applied to the back glass, so it didn't look great. I think the cabinet itself needed uh, a repaint, and, and although I had time to do that with uh, 2001 and Snow Derby, and of course Snow Derby did win the, the best in show for that category, uh, I think those two things are probably what, you know, those aesthetic uh, upgrades that just didn't quite push it over the edge for, for the win. But it was recognized, certainly, and, and I think that's why they at least did so with the uh, runner-up ribbon to kind of signify that it was a special game. But in terms of the restoration, uh, I have an exhaustive process that, to my knowledge, I don't think anyone is doing uh, with EMs at all. Not to just say, you know, gee, I'm awesome. And that's not the point. It's a commitment of time and, and money, and I'm taking a risk by investing this much of it in each project. But, um, um, the main thing I do that some people in the hobby consider maybe overkill is the clear coating of the playfield. Um, when I received the playfield, uh, some of the wood was almost, there was planking, that's where it has that kind of, you know, the wood has either been exposed to moisture or temperature changes and it kind of has that, you know, sort of rough texture to it. You can see the grain kind of rising. So um, that's that had to be dealt with. Um, the white circle that goes uh, all around the middle of the play field, that had turned sort of a brownish color. So that had to be completely uh, frisked off and, and uh, painted a, 
I, I, it actually is, is wider than the original game. I wanted it to match the uh, other elements on the in the plastics in the uh, play field. It just sort of, it, I, you know, the red, white, and blue theme. So, so that had to be resprayed. There's there were uh, a lot of touch-ups, and then of course the inserts. Some of them were loose and cupped. So clear coating. You know, when I began this uh, collecting, I kind of had to take a risk because I didn't know if the clear coat would, you know, profoundly change the gameplay. Some people have said that it creates too much spin or too, you know, there's this, it just feels different. But um, it was a gamble I think that has really paid off. Every game that I've cleared, pretty much all of my local collector friends have said that's the way to do it because it plays, uh, really just plays like the table's been freshly waxed. And the good part is you don't have to wax the table over and over again when it's cleared. It will just play like that all the time. So um, I think it looks great. I, I don't knock down the finish. I leave it nice and glossy like it's, you know, kind of like a new, a new modern game. But yet the artwork comes through, and I think it comes through even more beautifully than it, than it did, um, certainly after years of, of wear and, you know, and, and, and exposure to, you know, UV or sunlight so so it's a that's the one thing i do that's really kind of over and above the top is you know depopulating the play field touching up fixing inserts respraying the artwork and then clear coating it because um, i do believe that i believe in making upgrades in the spirit of the original um for example some people go crazy with leds and the colors are all you see is rainbow flashers right skittles effect yeah i mean that's fine if you are going for that it's your machine and hey you do what you want to that's fine but um i try to try to bridge um yesterday and 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 yesterday's technology with the good things that we've sort of found in, in modern technology and i think clear coating is a reasonable and actually desirable ste uh, step in that process so um that was probably the most significant thing that was done to make the game play well. Of course, the pop bumper bodies, caps, flippers, you know, these plastic parts that have worn out, uh, those have been replaced with new ones. Um, and of course, props to Steve Young at Pinball Resource for keeping all the parts moving along and good prices. You know, he's kind of my main supplier, but I also buy things from Marco and, and others as well. But uh, let's see, the plastics, uh, the original Playfield plastics, the, the, the uh, kind of the art pieces, those were luckily intact thank goodness because that lower piece being a prototype if it was broken or missing i would be totally out of luck because um, there's no yeah you know so you can get the upper pieces are the same but certainly not the lower one so i got lucky there but uh let's see so that covers let's see i've of course polished all the metals i had a new door put in a new door and the uh, and of course when i rebuild machines i take them completely apart down to the last screw and then put everything back like it's supposed to be you know new new sleeves every um, switch contact gets polished every relay gets disassembled regapped put back together it's a little ocd but you know the, i do have a, a future goal in mind which we can talk about i guess in the next stage of the interview but um you know bulletproofing them and making them um, good for another generation, um, I think is important. Um, cause certainly if you, it, a lot of, you know, it, if you only fix what's broken, 
you're really only setting yourself up for a failure the next time you take it to a pinball show or, or venue where you'll have, you know, 50, 100 games, and then the next thing will break. So, you, you know, these games are, you know, 30, 40, 50 years old, and they kind of need, you need to reset the clock at some point and set everything back in its original configuration as well as possible. So, so when they come through my stable, um, I do that, and I feel, and I couldn't do that for every game, of course. I, I do that because I've gone through the IPDB twice and identified uh, the machines that I feel are, they have a unique um, style or, or something about the gameplay or something that's worth preserving before I you know, embark upon this, this level of restoration, which takes anywhere from really just the mechanicals, a minimum of 30, 40 hours, assuming there's nothing that's truly wrong with it or have to order you part um, or undo something that was sort of hacked to, and then of course the repainting and the metal polishing and all that. I mean, we're talking easily 100 plus hours per machine. Well, that's really interesting, and I will, I'll say that I agree with your decision to have applied the clear coat, and I know Tony would have, as you undoubtedly heard during the, our last episode, he thought it looked like the playfield had come out of a new factory, that it was new, and I, I liked the way the ball mechanics worked on a, on, a, on a field that slick. So I thought, you know, in a way it didn't feel like an EM, but in a, in a positive way, it didn't have that same floaty sort of nature that some people who are more familiar with the modern games tend to frown upon. Uh, exactly. I, and I, I strongly dislike games, uh, EMs that are slow and floaty. Well, the floatiness is usually because the table isn't leveled correctly. Um, yeah. You know, EMs are supposed to be kind of tough, and they're supposed to be fast and, and a little difficult. So most of the time, that's just leveling, and it's because the mechs haven't really been gone through and serviced, and everything feels a little sluggish. And, and unfortunately, that's, uh, that's something that also motivates me, because I think when modern players walk by EMs, they've kind of been trained to ignore them because so many of them are in just not very good shape, or if they are in good shape, they haven't been leveled, or if they've been leveled, they, they have the weird graphical things that were done to them, or lighting that's kind of odd, and if, you know, it's hard to get everything right, there's just a lot of consideration required to get an EM back to have that original feel, but certainly clear coating, um, to me, eliminates that annoying um, issue where the ball travels over a cup insert and then it changes the trajectory or sometimes it gets stuck up there. I just can't stand that. And, and they didn't, they didn't play like that when they were new. So, so in a way they, it is kind of, you're getting the experience that people got, you know, 34 years ago. So, so what is your long-term plan here then? <laughs> what is, Willy Wonka's pinball factory going to come up with. Well, we have, <laughs> we have some very interesting uh, things uh, in, in store. Well, even what we're doing at Ed Vector, um, uh, we have um, a couple of people, Steve and Stacy, um, they're a couple, and boy, they have, I have, I, you know, I kind of feel like um, I'm everyone's sort of pinball drug dealer because I've 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 poached all members of the vector committee from existing makers. You know, they were already at the makerspace doing other things, and they kind of wandered over to 
what I was doing with my pinball machines and were like, hey, that's kind of neat, and how much does it cost? And, oh, really, 300 bucks? I can get a good game? Oh, wow. Well, maybe I'll do that. And then, like, you know, one thing leads to another, and now we have a little committee of people. But um, uh, Steve-O and Stacy have just taken off. They're already up to nine machines. I mean, they just got into this a few months ago, you know, and, yeah, they just bought a Stargate and a Pinbot at the Texas Pinball Festival last week, and, you know, last year they bought a World Cup Soccer, and... You know, they've, they've totally, like, they've, um, they're working on rebuilding a, a Gold Wings by Premier. They've uh, got a couple of EMs that I'm teaching them how to do the full rebuild and all that. And they had a Yukon. Unfortunately, it wasn't quite um, fully dialed in yet, but they were doing some interesting things with uh, Hall Effect sensors, and they had, like, uh, Arduino in the back that, that was doing score tracking on EMs. And once you cross certain thousand, two thousand, three thousand point thresholds, they had little callouts, little digital callouts from like old movies that were like, yeah, and little like theme, you know, <laughs> callouts for, for in an EM, you know. And I'm like, that's, I mean, that's that's really cool to bridge in technology like that. It's like that's the kind of experimentation that you know will lead to the next thing, the next big kind of amusing thing in, in pinball. So we're, we definitely take the, the Ben Heck kind of hackery side of, uh, of uh, working with our machines. But so anyway, as far as the future is concerned, I have um, kind of a, I had a, a, my brother and I ran a bar in Austin about 10 years ago. It was called the Peacock and it did well and it was cool and kitschy and it was kind of like Willy Wonka meets cruise ship kind of aesthetic, you know. And I, I, I lived in Dallas. I wasn't able to run the bar with him, but I did kind of like the, the business. It's just kind of a, you know, nice, social, crazy, unpredictable, work hard, but, you know, sort of inexplicable and fun. So I think combining that with pinball, and specifically electromechanicals, um, I have a, a, now that I've kind of, taken apart so many machines and have I, I have the understanding of which games are, are kind of have engaging gameplay which ones are significant in terms of the history of EM and pinball uh, what it takes to get everything dialed in and reliable what it takes to have those next level upgrades made that don't sacrifice the gameplay even the right blend of sort of LED lights and and uh, that's one thing I have a pin side thread about stealth LED, in which I call it stealth LED because it's a combination of filament bulbs and LEDs that, you know, you use the warm white LEDs in a way that's complementary um, so that it still evokes that original look, but then you have inserts that are a little brighter, back glass with the artwork that still comes out, and you still have some of the power savings. So, again, it's that best of both kind of approach, but... Um, moving forward, it's about making the machines bulletproof, fun to play, fun to look at, and also doing score tracking and social kind of media integration in the sense that, for example, uh, Dennis, you go into the, you know, you go into a barcade, which is, that's the next, the next venue is going to be like a barcade with craft beers and, you know, pinball machines and stuff, but, um, you can play an EM, and you'll swipe, you know, a little card, start the game, and it can track your score and kind of pit you in friendly competition against other people who come to the bar. 
and so, and maybe even have a like a prize redemption for you know adults, like stuff adults want, you know, like maybe etched barware, you know, cool, cool souvenir stuff. This is a twenty-one and up thing. It's not going to be for kids, but um, it will. It, it kind of brings EMs. It gives EMs another um, level of depth and competition that kind of makes it more relevant with the types of games people play today without, again, without sacrificing uh, what's good about EMs, because after all, in my opinion, that's kind of my favorite era, is just that classic pure pinball that they represent. So, so again, going forward, it's about uh, creating a barcade um, that has um, old and new, and even within the games themselves, old and new tech to um, expand the gameplay from simply you and the machine and making numbers go higher to those numbers having a competitive meaning, a, a, a redemption aspect to them, and um, tying the social aspect together and, and, and enlarging kind of the pinball experience as a whole. Well, that's very ambitious. Uh, I think you have a good plan that has a lot of potential to work out. Yes, it's certainly ambitious. I mean, it's very, uh, you know, it's, it's something that we could also, if it's, um, you know, location is everything. I mean, it is, of course, still primarily a, you know, bar entertainment venue. You know, the games are there, as, you know, to, uh, as our unique um, offering. But, you know, it is, it is a business. It's, you know, it's not, not, not a hobby at that point. But I do think that uh, it does, that, again, the uh, score tracking and social integration brings a dimension to it that is, is kind of a value add without taking any anything away from the fundamentals of the game and of course we want to also attract you know tournament players and and uh, you know the community as well so um, and maybe even if it takes off it'll be something that other owners or, or venues would want to um, maybe even link up or, or institute in their own their own businesses, but uh, it's 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 it seems pretty exciting. We've done some preliminary tests, and uh, it just it seems to be something that's worth exploring and expanding upon. So yeah, it just kind of looks like maybe two two and a half years out, we'll be looking at uh, setting up shop. Excellent. Well, uh, Nick, I want to thank you for taking the time to do this interview with me, and uh, hopefully we'll see some new stuff out of the Vector Committee for Texas Pinball Festival 2017. Yeah, set you guys set a pretty high bar for yourselves in 2016, so it's going to be tough to beat that, I think, but if any group's set to do it, it's obviously you all. Yeah, we're bringing our, uh, we're, we're, we're definitely bringing it next year. Everybody's pumped, and we're really happy with uh with our reception last year. So yeah, stay tuned and come on out next year. It's going to be fun. All right. Thanks a lot. Take care, Nick. All right. Cheers, Dennis. Thanks. And so that was my interview with Nick Dangerous. I really appreciate that he took the time to speak with me about freedom and all the the activities going on with the Dallas Makerspace. Uh, I should I should go ahead and start out as I noted in the interview. I'm I was very unfamiliar with the idea of the maker of a makerspace. I'm a bit I suppose I'm a bit surprised how ignorant I was on it. Uh, I think it's a really neat idea. I see a lot of potential for doing things like video game and pinball restoration. And obviously, flat-out creation, like what we heard uh, regarding the Mortal Kombat game that was also at Texas. I get the idea. I'd known that there were groups and things of people that would pull money together to invest in items that are really expensive, 
uh, like 3D printing, for example, to get their own 3D printers. But I wasn't aware of anything that large scale or that organized. And it does sound like Dallas may be the most advanced uh, in terms of makerspace concept, uh, at least nationally. Yeah, I've heard of makerspaces uh, before uh, through some other podcasts I listen to and a lot of forums that I take part in. Uh, I know they're really popular on the West Coast. I know there are several big ones in like San Francisco and Seattle, and I know there are several other places with them. Um, I think they're a really good idea, especially for people more uh, in town and urban, big urban areas, especially apartment dwellers, people who wouldn't normally be able to put together stuff like that because it gives them the workspace they need and it lets them put together the more expensive parts that is normally not accessible uh, to most people while still giving them the freedom to create and do whatever they want. I mean, if they want to just sit down and go old fashioned and build an old fashioned rocking chair, they can do it. If they want to work on a bicycle or work on uh, some weird little 3d printed project or something, it's all stuff that's possible. And it's all thanks to makerspaces. Uh, I, from everything I've seen, they're just a really, really good idea for the people who don't have room and don't have the money. Yeah, no, I, I can imagine a lot of potential with that. Um, far more ambitious projects would be possible than what like my dad and I who do most of our when I do a project, that's who I usually do it with. And we're in usually my garage with whatever cheap materials we can we can assemble. And that dictates sort of what sort of approach to a project we will take on. And it's never been anything as expansive as what we saw coming out of the Dallas group. Uh, let's transition a little bit uh, to the part of the interview. Uh, where he, uh, where Nick went into the details regarding uh, freedom and the history of that fascinating machine, or at least I found it quite fascinating. I did not realize how rare uh, middle pop games, middle pop by way, way, by which I mean having that pop bumper in between the flippers. I didn't realize they were that rare. I, I've I've always known that I haven't seen them around very much, but I. I've always just assumed to get, you know, I'm mostly familiar with solid state and later and the three inch flipper model. And generally you just have the flippers and the drain hole in between. And so it's just not something that that layout's kind of fixed now. Whereas if you look back at the EM era, they played around with the flipper layouts a whole lot after they got introduced in the forties, especially given how well it seemed to play to me, having that middle pop by those flippers. I was especially amazed that it didn't win over folks, the European folks at the trade shows, that they thought that was so weird because to me, that's what makes that game uh, compared to a lot of the other EMs I was able to experience down in Texas. What were your thoughts on that? I do think it makes that game. And it's, uh, I know you have one that I've played a little bit, and those are the only two I've played uh, that have that pop bumper. But I really think it brings a whole new uh kind of feel to the game and while it's not something that i think we're ever going to see again because everything has solid is very solid down into the the what the forms are currently i think even a modern table built properly could probably pull something like that off pretty well and be a lot of fun i just i don't know i don't i I don't think it's something we'll see it's a uh different feel it's kind of like some of the machines i cannot remember the name of the machine but i played a machine that had the uh where the flippers instead of flipping uh with the smaller ends towards each other they were rotated so they flipped on the outside and the ball rolled to the left or right of them instead of rolling down between them i played one of those and that was an interesting little game it's just that whole testing and marketing and working with stuff from back in the day is something that is I think kind of missing nowadays. 
Yeah, I think uh, part of that could just be that pinball, even though it's in its resurgence now, it's not like how it was back then. And so there are just certain risks that no one wants to take anymore because it would be far too it'd be far too disastrous if it didn't if it didn't catch. So like, for example, those what I call reverse flippers. Uh, my understanding is that's the, the reverse flipper layout was the first flipper layout the, when they in the late 40s, when those games first started to appear. I don't know when they first uh, went to what we think of as the right <laughs> the right way to face the flippers and where the points are facing in. But but, you know, even when, you know, P3, for example, uh, multimorphic and how uh, innovative that is. Obviously, the way they've gone with that is those slings and those flippers are in the standard now traditional format. And that's something they chose that not to muck around with in doing anything. It's all the back box, uh, not back box, but the back of the play field stuff with the modules that gets to have the changes. And I think it's just because now that sort of double sling, double three inch flipper layout is so accepted and no one wants to risk going against that. It's, it's not worth it. So yeah, it's, it's interesting. I mean, when we look back at the EM era, we can see a lot more uh, innovation in terms of layout. I mean, some of those layouts are big duds too. So obviously I understand why no one wants to take a sort of chance like that anymore. Uh, Something that I thought was really interesting that Nick did with Freedom, which uh, apparently is what made the gameplay so well, in addition to that uh, fascinating prototype pop bump, was the uh, clear coding that he went in and clear coded it. I what I thought I wasn't surprised that he clear coded it. It made a lot of sense to me after playing it that that was why the ball was rolling so well, or as you had described it, I believe, as feeling like it had just come off the factory floor. But what I thought was interesting is that a lot of other restorers don't seem to consider it. And I guess my from talking to Nick, my sense was that that seems to come down to maybe a purist versus a reformist perspective, as I would categorize it, where there's some people that want, when they do a restoration, they want it to be as much as how it was when it actually came out as possible, which would mean no clear coat because they were not clear coated back then, or versus someone that might be wanting to make the game look new again, but is willing to put in modern accommodations or accruements that are going to, in theory, make the game play better. And I thought the clear coat was a winner. I Now I wish all my EMs were clear coated. I'm just too lazy to do the work to do it. But uh, I think they would probably all play better if they were actually coded like that. Yeah, I think it worked really well. I um, enjoyed it quite a lot. I think on the people seen differently, I think it's kind of like car people. You see people who want to mod their cars a lot or people who want to mod it just a little bit and people who keep everything as stock as possible. And typically, it's just, you know, what one person likes. I know personally, I kind of like the taking an old machine and cleaning it up and making sure it looks like the old machine. Even if you've gone through and modernized it a little, I think the clear coating's nice or switching out uh, uh, the lights for LEDs provided you get enough GI is a wonderful little thing that I don't think it actually affects the gameplay at all. I think that kind of stuff is something that's really good and can be really, really well done and can do a lot for an older game. Yeah. And um, in my experience with the pinball community, I would, I would assess that most people are more in the modding. It's it's more of a mod community than it is a keep things stock sort of view. But within the pinball community, there's not a lot comparatively as a percentage doing work on the EM front. It seems to be much more oriented to the DMD area era 
and beyond at this point specifically. Uh, and that probably just has to do with the nostalgia and what, what was out when people were first playing pinball. But, but um, so, you know, there could be more differences there in terms of purists from the EM front, but I just thought it was a, it was an interesting uh, aspect to the restoration process that uh, I didn't notice on very many other games on the EM front at Texas. So I thought it was a really good move. Uh, what do you think of his ideas on the score tracking and social media integration uh, that he has that were very specific to electrical mechanical machines to do in a setting like a bar? Uh, the way I got my impression from it when I, after I completed the interview and I was thinking about it was that it's sort of like achievements for EM machines, uh, that it would be is um, you know a way for people playing at a particular location to keep track of stuff that just wasn't done you know, when those machines were made. What I was sort of curious about, though, is uh, will it make EMs a viable uh, option to put on location? Will it make them modern enough to, to entertain today's audience uh, while still relying on the traditional gameplay mechanics that are going to be a part of the machines themselves? So I didn't know what your thoughts were on that. In my experience in the Kansas City area, you know, we have, we have three main venues with high-quality uh, location play, and I've only ever seen one of them have an EM machine, and only once. And so, so out of all the lineups, I've seen one EM machine ever in the, you know, just over a year that I've been regularly going to these places. And so it would be, I think it'd be really interesting to see something that would hook people into saying, let's let's go ahead and let's put EMs on location, and people will actually want to play them. Uh, I don't know. What uh, what do you think of it? Do you think the score tracking sort of social media thing, is that the hook that's needed? Will it work? It might work. Uh, I think it could be just that EM games are just too slow for modern players, and they're not deep enough for modern players. They're, uh, it's too easy to have a solved game. But then I think there's still a, some nostalgia that could be had. I think they've got a chance, and I think an addition like that could do a lot. But I think that addition is actually a really brilliant idea, not just for EM machines, but for all machines, especially if you if it could be done right and set up right. I know everybody's got their fancy little cell phones anymore, even I do. And if you could set it up so you could tie your cell phone into a modern machine using like, you know, an NFC or a, or even a Q code or something else, something where it literally just takes you tapping your phone up to the side of your machine and telling it which player you are and having it track those scores and send them to you or send them to a site. Like I know a steam on the PC side or like Xbox live that tracks scores and achievements and this and that, if there was something like that online that could track your, as you play stats. And I think it would be really interesting. I think it'd bring another thing to the table when it comes to play. I know there's a lot of competitive people out there, and I think it would go a long way towards helping drive their competitive natures. And honestly, I could see where a whole bank of machines that were activated like that in a tournament setting would be a very, very powerful tool for tournament organizers. Those are some very good points. I think that uh, we'll have to keep an eye and see just exactly. We'll let Dallas 
area. We'll let Nick lead the way on this and we'll we'll just have to keep track and see if this resonates when they move forward on it. And then in in true Kansas fashion, perhaps we'll see some some cloning if we see some success elsewhere. Uh, the social ability to be able to track things is something I have heard from other pinball players, uh, especially people who come more from a video game background and they look in at it and they wonder why is it still so archaic? And comparably, it is still very archaic. And I, you know, without even getting into the whole thing, like why is Stern still use DMD and all of that, just a lot of the ability for it to to synchronize, to truly make a multiplayer experience as seamless as possible, to be competitive as seamless as possible, uh, they lag. They lag way behind. And there are a lot of reasons that that's the case and i'm not surprised at those it's just it would be nice to see something move forward it would be i think extra interesting to actually see that happen in the context of trying to drive em machines into more location play popularity but anyway it was a fascinating interview and i'm really glad that nick agreed to do it so let's go ahead and transition over to our second topic area, which is video games. I believe we only have one item that we wanted to go into, but it is a big one when you consider the history of video games and more specifically the history of RPGs, and that would be Final Fantasy XV. The release date has been announced. There is actually a playable demo available on console, and so it looks like finally at long, 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 long last, Final Fantasy XV will be a game that people can get and enjoy. So I guess let's just go ahead and, and dive into it. Tony, what are your thoughts on the announcement that Final Fantasy XV is finally going to be playable? Well, I mean, it's been a long time coming. And the Final Fantasy series was my introduction to video game RPGs. Uh, playing Final Fantasy 1 and eventually Final Fantasy 2 on the Nintendo and the Super Nintendo. Uh, and I consider several of the Final Fantasy games my favorite RPG game, video games of all time. Uh, 6, 7, and 9 are my three favorite Final Fantasy games. With that said, I really haven't had a lot of interest in any of the newer Final Fantasy games. And just the entire JRPG style has really grown stale to me it's not something that i'm as interested in as i was back then i've gone much more into the open world style rpg gaming i am going to be interested to see how a game that's been in process for a decade like this will actually work that said there is no pc version so i'm not going to get a chance to try it for myself uh, there's not going to be any way for me to. Yeah, the, you made a, a couple of really good points there. The first was uh, about the decade. For those that aren't familiar with Final Fantasy, uh, Final Fantasy 15 was first announced in 2006. So it really has been a decade. It wasn't called Final Fantasy 15 back then. It was called Final Fantasy versus 13. But what that was is now 15. Um, like you, uh, RPG background, uh, Final Fantasy was one of the earliest RPGs I was familiar with. I can't say that it was my introduction. I don't know. I may have played Dragon's Quest first, and then we can get into whether or not we're counting every all of these as RPGs, but Dragon's Quest, I, I felt, met the criteria at the time. Uh, so Final, yeah, Final Fantasy 1, Final Fantasy 2, which now known as 4, but it was 2 to us Americans when it came out. Uh, I'd say I really enjoyed Final Fantasies 5, 6, 7. I even liked 8 Decent. I've played 12. 
12. I didn't play nine. 12 was okay. It was very linear though. And that was a lot of the criticism is it didn't feel as open as the old Final Fantasies did. And your point about the stagnation that's been seen in the, what's broadly considered the Japanese RPG genre is, it's, I think, very real. It, and it's been a serious problem. The, the Western RPG category, which is more characterized by uh, less emphasis on t- storytelling, especially through cutscenes, which started to become more and more popular on the JRPG scene when the PlayStation came out. Uh, more open world, you know, free form, allowing you to go around, discover your own side quests, things like that. That is where RPGs are at now. And JRPGs have sort of stuck to their more traditional formula. They've embraced doing action combat mechanics versus sticking with the old turn-based approach. But other than that, there hasn't been a whole lot of change. And some people appreciate that. But the market, broadly speaking, has definitely been going more towards these open world, open concept, open class sort of scenarios where you kind of build up your own character rather than doing this whole, well, you have a whole party of different classes and you mix and match or maybe it gets mandated what you're going to do. It just depends on the version. Uh, the, The PC thing, that's a really good point. Also, I am flabbergasted that they claim that they could not develop this simultaneously with the PlayStation 4 and the Xbox One. Both of those consoles are on PC architecture, so I I just don't get it. I could understand that maybe the PC version wouldn't look any better, but I don't understand why they couldn't have easily done a port, especially now, and just said, okay, it's not going to look any better no matter how awesome your rig is than it was going to look on the Xbox. But it would still be available. I mean, I I just, again, I don't I don't understand the nuance of that. I thought it was a, a lazy, lame excuse uh, to not have it out on PC. And honestly, uh, while this is going to be a juggernaut, and I'm sure it's going to do gangbusters for Square when it comes out on the consoles, it would have done even better had they included PC. And at this point, Uh, I mean, they're obviously not doing console exclusives, so there's no reason to be playing favorites and try and leave that out, even if their PC market is smaller than their console market is. It would have been like leaving out the Xbox and just doing the PS4, which is probably going to be where most of the sales are is the PS4. So, yeah, I don't understand that. Uh, Some differences that I know about that have been announced with Final Fantasy XV is uh, it appears that you will only control one character. This is a pretty big departure i'd say uh it could work well i've played other rpgs where you've had competent uh ai controlled characters as your support but you only really manage the one character in some ways i actually prefer the model if it's done well than having to sort of micromanage things i'm not i don't i just don't like that in my rpgs anymore whereas when i was a kid i did uh, my main concern though is what i had a problem with with 12 and that's about linearity uh, I'm really concerned that I think it was 12, maybe it was 13. I'm losing track of it. if I'm saying I'm saying 12 a lot. It's whatever the one had lightning in it. And I, I borrowed it from my brother-in-law and the game's story was fine. It's just you felt like you were just running down hallway after hallway until the one end game area they included. And the that area was awesome but it was almost entirely optional. The storyline had you run briefly through it, and then afterwards you were able to go back and work on a whole bunch of really hard monsters. And I really enjoyed that. But otherwise, it felt completely it completely linear. There were like, weren't any side quests or didn't feel like there were any. Uh, and so 
my hope is that they go back towards more of their old Final Fantasy model, which let's not, I, I don't want to overstate it. Final Fantasy was never like this massive open world thing. It was sort of like you played, eventually you got an airship, and then you could fly around the map. Uh, but there weren't like tons of side quests everywhere. This is not Fallout. It's not Elder Scrolls. Uh, so I don't want to ever say that it was like that, but at least it did a pretty good job of creating the illusion that you had choice and that they've sort of, sort of forsaken that lately. And I'm hoping they're going to get back to that with this one. Uh, I did try the demo. I can't recommend, uh, you know, I can't really recommend the demo because it feels more like a tech demo. The game looks great. The demo, I mean, graphically, it's a very, it's very impressive. But I didn't get a really good feel for the gameplay. The combat mechanics kind of felt a little Kingdom Heartsy to me, I think. Again, I haven't played one of those in years. But um, I, it has potential. So I, this is one. I, it's not going to be a day one buy for me. But you know, Final Fantasy VII, seeing you have a copy of that and watching you play that is why I got a PlayStation. So I've always got a soft spot in my heart for Final Fantasy, even when it lets me down. So I'm going to keep my eye on this. But currently, I think it looks very shiny, uh, but I'll be willing to wait for a sale. Yeah, seven, 7 was a lot of fun. I remember that was, I got that for Christmas, as I recall, and burned through it all through the break when we weren't in school. That was a, That was a good time. The whole linearity thing is a problem that I've noticed not just with the Final Fantasy games, but it seems like a lot of games, as they require more and more and more work, uh, they're cutting down on story or cutting down on options, I should say. I mean, I remember back in the day playing Wing Commander when every single win or lose a mission, you would just go on. It just, did you go farther down the losing path or did you go farther up the winning path? And a lot of the games nowadays don't have anything like that. And what they do have that is similar to that, what they do a lot of times is it'll start out very, very linear and it will break off and branch off through the middle of the game. And then it pulls back down. So by the end of the game, you still only have one, maybe two paths that you can go and everything that happened before everything that happened in the middle, none of that really mattered. Uh, it was flavor, but it didn't matter if you made choices here or if you made choices there. And a lot of times when you're playing the games, you can see that in the cutscenes and the dialogue, you can see this places where another character was supposed to be and wasn't because you got that character killed or that character didn't die, but there was, but they were supposed to. So when they're talking, what they don't really have any purpose or important impact past the point where they were supposed to have died. So even if you save them, nothing changed. They're just another body that's there. They're another NPC that doesn't really matter in the end. Yeah, I think in the in the case specifically of the linearity relating to JRPGs, my general sense has been the chief reason for this is they have transitioned towards a very heavy approach on doing cutscene-laden games, usually with high CG production values and voice acting, and they're very much showpieces. In some ways, playing a JRPG, and this is part of the sort of definition of the genre for a lot of people, is at this stage to go ahead and experience something where there is game. I mean, most of the game is game, but there are also very, very significant periods where you are not in control and you are just watching a movie. 
And of course, if you were to actually offer options and those options affected how that movie plays out, you would have to record additional voices. You would have to animate additional footage for all those various scenarios. And they just, they're already putting in so much money on the production. It's just not worth it to them. They'd rather just tell a straightforward story. And we see that straightforward story approach, obviously, in a lot of other things like most shooting genre. I mean, really, other than open world RPGs, most games are pretty linear or they may do something where you can have like a, a, a last minute choice. Do you save this person or kill this person? And it doesn't even affect the cutscenes so much. It might just be, you know, it gives you a little the, the ending story is like stills with a voiceover and they just have to have that person record two scripts and those scripts are like less than 90 seconds long. So that's where I think those sort of scenarios c- come into play. And JRPGs have very much embraced the let's have this sort of cinematic experience and not just Final Fantasy, but I, we see it out of a lot of the major JRPG producers uh, at this stage. And that's OK. It's just. I think for most of the gaming public, they rather have all that choice and get to experience that, that they're making a difference. It seems to be what's working with the RPG community because it's things like, oh, well, I mean, Witcher 3, for example, the big thing, which I still haven't played it yet, uh, but compared to Witcher 2, it's getting a lot better reviews. And Witcher 2 was a liked game, but Witcher 2 was pretty linear. It You'd go to seg- sections and you had side quests and stuff within those, but it never opened up fully. And Witcher 3 the rave reviews about it are just how open it is like a sandbox game. And so that just seems to be where most RPG demand is now. And I understand why, but you would never get that. And the major cinematic experiences when you play fallout, you do not have major CG laden cutscenes for all of these stories because they're just way too many choices and way too many quests. It would never work. It'd be too expensive. So this is what we get instead. But on the JRPG side, they still want to deliver that, what I call the cinematic experience. Yeah, I watched a Let's Play of a gentleman playing the latest uh, Tales game, and I was struck by just how interesting the story was and how really, really good the cutscenes were. I mean, the opening scenes and the entire first like hour of the game, which was just opening scene, had lots of video and was really... I mean, it, it felt like I was sitting down watching an anime is what it felt like with occasional scenes of him walking around and doing a couple other minor things. And throughout the course of the game, I mean, the story was good. The The cutscenes were amazing, but it really did feel like the gameplay was just something to do between all of that. Like they could have strung everything together and just sold it as a show and probably done just as well. Yeah, Final Fantasy Type Zero, the game I finished up today, my same experience. I liked the cinematic elements. I liked watching the story. The gameplay did not impress me. I, I it was fine. I I muddled through it, but it it's not. It was nothing to write home about. It's not impressive. I don't recommend the game because it was. I mean, it had plenty of game in it. It's just no, there was nothing unique about it. Uh, it was just a. It wasn't a mess. It was just what it was. We're going to go ahead and move on to our final section for the night, uh, Tabletop. Over the last several weeks, we've talked about a lot of different games, and we've talked about my favorite form of gaming, which are the uh, deck-building games. But now we're going to talk about my addiction, my crack, my second favorite form of the game, and the one that takes the most out of my pocket, Tabletop Miniatures games. There are a lot of Tabletop Miniatures games out there. Uh, they come in small units that don't 
require a few models to play with. They come in ones that require armies of hundreds, if not more, models to play. They cover pretty much every genre you could ever want. I mean, World War II, steampunk, World War I, sci-fi, fantasy, anything. It's all out there. Several are really well-known, and one of them in particular has gotten very big lately with the on the video game front of taking their IP and shifting to video games. And that would be the Warhammer Fantasy and Warhammer 40K stuff by Games Workshop. I personally have not played those two games to the point of owning an army. I've played them with friends' armies, but they are not my bread and butter of minis games. They require a bit different way of playing and... And I don't really like Game Workshop's way they go about changing the rule sets as often as they do. My entrance into tabletop mini gaming happened about 11 years ago. I picked up a game called Axis and Allies War at Sea, which was the simplest way to enter into uh, mini gaming. The minis were already painted. They didn't need to be assembled. You literally just pulled them out of the box and played with them. As the name of the game sounds, it was a World War II naval combat game uh, based around easy rules, and each side commanded a fleet on a grid map, and you moved around. Not nearly as complicated as a lot of games out there. I didn't need a tape measure to measure things. I didn't need anything fancy. It was just designed for a nice and easy, quick play. And I played that game for years. I had a large group of friends I played with that met up there nightly. And it was something that was very much a gateway drug to me when it came to gaming. I stepped away from War at Sea as things started to spin down. And instead, I picked up another game. I moved into the Privateer Press's uh, War Machine. Uh, Specifically, I built myself a Cotor Army. And I've never looked back. Now, War Machine falls into the more complicated route without going quite as bad as the games that require incredibly large armies. Uh, The army count or the model count on the table is still fairly small. I've played games where I've had as few as three models on the table and games where I've had as many as probably 45 or 50 models on the table. It is a more classic minis game. You buy the models, use the specific models you want, to build the army you want and then you have to assemble them and paint them and go through the whole thing yourself and with most of these games that is the actual primary thing you do while you're playing is painting and assembling your models and building your armies you spend many 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 more hours painting than you do playing and it kind of draws a specific kind of player yeah, actually, giving your overview of this, it, it sounds like that, especially compared to the other tabletop game types we we speak about, and obviously we have been more focused on the card format than anything else, but these seem to take a bit of a commitment to get started. But it also sounds like, such as with the first example that got you in, that isn't always the case. So I guess what I would want to know as someone who has no experience whatsoever in tabletop mini games. I'm familiar with some of these franchises because of their outreach into things like video games, but I've never actually played the tabletop mini games or painted any of the figures or anything like that. What would you recommend for someone who is interested in this concept, is interested in either in gaining the painting or whatever, but but just the idea that they want to play these mini games, but they have no idea where to start? 
where should they start? What would be the best approach in your view for them to actually get their feet wet and see if they like it enough to actually dive in deeper? I think the best place to get your feet wet without having to put out too much money with the understanding that minis games are expensive. They, especially if you get into something like games, workshops, games, uh, do not be, we wouldn't be surprised for some armies to spend thousands upon thousands upon thousands of dollars to build your army up. I could very comfortably probably sell off my war machine army and it wouldn't surprise me to get uh, between a thousand and fifteen hundred dollars for it, especially if I finished all my painting and sold it as a lump sum complete painted army. And uh, and War Machine's a very cheap game compared to a lot of them. Uh, the big thing, though, if you want to get in, get your feet wet. There are several very good games out there right now. And it, the, which one you would go after would completely depend upon your interest. I think the number one out there would be X-Wing, which is by Fantasy Flight Games. And it is exactly what it sounds like. It is a Star Wars fighter combat simulator. The models are already fully painted. It comes, uh, you get the starter box and it comes with literally everything you need to start. Any extra aircraft or fighters you add are just extra ships that for you to build your groups out of. And no, nothing weird. You don't need tape measures or anything like that. It's got movement tokens and it's a very simple game. And it's a very fun game. I own it. it. I own a fairly large number of fighters for it. I enjoy it quite a lot. Now, if you were still in the Star Wars bent, but the fighter combat isn't as interesting to you, they have recently started, the same company yet again, has started putting out Star Wars Armada. I have not played it yet. I've seen it played. I own a single ship because they look that good. It looks like something that somebody put a lot of time into. They look real nice. I've got one, and it's on display as part of my uh, Star Destroyer display section. It is entirely based around capital ship combat. There are fighters in them, of course, because this is Star Wars, but the primary goal is heavy capital ship combat. If you're not as into Star Wars, there's several other games that use similar uh, control variants and movement tokens and uh, pre-painted ships like Sails of Glory, if you like Age of Sail naval combat, or Wings of Glory, if you like World War One dogfighting. Any of those games would be a great place for somebody who has very little experience and they are not willing to drop huge amounts of money in to play to start out at. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for going through that. I'm so weak on tabletop game knowledge, and you are our resident expert. And it's good to finally touch on an area that I've I've known about. Actually, when I think tabletop game, my first thing I think of is like D and D with the, all the dice and the books, and because of, that was my introduction to tabletop. Uh, but the second thing is actually thinking about the these with the figures and the painting, because that's just what 
just visually what I've always recalled seeing, even though it's never been an element that I have dived into. For our listeners, I should point out that we are always open to covering other uh, topics within our three categories of tabletop, video games, and pinball. If you want to email us at eclecticgamerspodcast at gmail.com, we do check that and we will try and format accordingly. We are looking at, especially like on the pinball side, for example, I know that we're not expecting a lot of new announcements uh, coming up. So I'm hoping to try and get some more interviews to try and uh, explore some elements of the hobby that we don't touch upon because they're not part of the normal the normal news cycle. So we need to turn to the, to the real experts, the people who are actually uh, doing these sort of things. And I think there are a lot of interesting stories there. And we're hoping to get information like that regarding our other two topics as well. I should point out, uh, in addition to email, you can reach the show at facebook.com slash eclectic gamers podcast. It's probably the best way because we're easily able to monitor it. Uh, and I just want to thank everyone once again for listening to us. Thank you, everyone. And we will see you next time.